Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shins that eliminate noise for the life of the pad. Rubber-coated hardware for a better fit and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy Rails tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's pod, Dan talks to Latasha Brown, an organizer and co-founder of the Black Voters Matter Fund. Before that, we'll talk about the latest developments in the national uprising against racism and injustice, what may have been the darkest moment of the Trump presidency, and Joe Biden's big speech about race in Philadelphia. But first, you should always listen to Pod Save the People, but especially this week, DeRay, Brittany, Clint, and Sam recorded a very powerful episode that's worth every minute of your time. Uh, Later in the pod, we'll also be talking about the 8 Can't Wait campaign, which was created by DeRay, Brittany, and Sam. It's about pushing cities to adopt eight policies that can decrease police violence. Uh, You can check that out at 8cantwait.org, the number 8cantwait.org. You can also support organizations working to combat police violence and systemic racism by going to crooked.com slash bail funds and crooked.com slash bail change funds. Uh, Dan, I also see something on here about a state that you have adopted. (laughs) You're in lack of enthusiasm for winning the critical battleground state of North Carolina, which is important (laughs) to winning the White House, taking back the Senate and preserving democracy is noted, I would think. (laughs) And so here on Team North Carolina, which includes myself, Elijah, Shaniqua, Yale, and a lot of really, it's a real... Um, you got a lot of you got a lot of the cricket staff on your team. Yeah, uh, you should probably take note of that and think about <laughs> it for a second. <laughs> and so we have to be particularly creative in Team North Carolina. We had we did not have some big podcast like The Wilderness pushing us for years. We didn't have we don't have a Monday pod that's consistently pushing us like Team Arizona, which has two podcasts a week to push for itself. So what we're going to do here is we got a, a little creative, hopefully creative. Uh, contests we're doing where if you sign up at the link I'm going to tweet out, which is go.crooked.com slash adopt NC. If you sign up to adopt North Carolina at that state, you'll be entered to win one of 10 signed copies of my book that are sitting, uh, taking up space in the house I cannot leave. Um, because the the reason I adopt North Carolina, other than just my book, which I don't think is a sufficient reason, but if it puts you over the top, who am I to argue, um, is... <laughs> North Carolina is the state that will determine not just the White House, but whether we take the Senate back. We have to elect Kyle Cunningham. We can flip the House there. And as I've said before, North Carolina Republicans are some of the worst in the country, and they deserve to be defeated. So go to go.crooked.com slash adopt NC, sign up, 
enter to win and help us save democracy. What do you got, Team All Arizona? Right. All right. Well, now I have to think of some fucking bribe to uh, get people to sign up for Arizona. So I'm going to sleep on that. I would I mean, go for it. Do me a favor. <laughs> yeah. um, Look, I, a quid pro quo to save democracy is much better than a quid quo pro to destroy it. That is a that is a good rule of thumb. Yes. Um, all right. Let's get to the news. The nationwide protest that erupted after the police murder of George Floyd has now spread to all 50 states and countries around the world. They have been met in many instances with more police brutality. There are videos all over the internet of peaceful protesters and journalists being tear gassed, shot at with rubber bullets, and physically attacked as they're arrested by police officers. Dozens of cities were still under curfew as of Wednesday night, which mayors say they imposed to stop the looting and destruction committed by different groups of people who had nothing to do with the protests. And now there are more National Guard soldiers deployed in American cities than active duty soldiers deployed in Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan. But despite all this, the men and women in the streets have already seen signs of progress. On Wednesday, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison increased the charge against the police officer who killed Floyd to second-degree murder, and he also charged the other three officers involved with aiding and abetting murder. Dan, uh, I think the last time we recorded the protest hadn't begun, um, what has been your reaction watching this moment unfold over the last week? This has been a moment that I've really struggled to put into words my feelings about it. You know, it is both incredibly disturbing and frustrating and angering to see a situation that we have in this country where violent police violence like this, both what happened to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor um, and so many others um, can happen in this country and the violence that we're then seeing from the police against peaceful protesters around the country. Yet at the same time, you turn on the TV and you see millions, millions of Americans of all ages, all races, all backgrounds marching in the streets peacefully, nobly, adhering to the principles of civil disobedience, in doing so, putting their literal lives at risk, not just because we're living in the middle of a pandemic, but because we have a president and other authorities who are advocating for state-sponsored violence against these protesters, who are calling them Antifa and domestic terrorists, talking about them as if they were foreign terrorists trying to destroy the homeland. And you, like, you're right, the progress has been Nowhere near what we need to address systemic racism in this country and to deal with police brutality, but progress is happening. And so it is a set of mixed emotions every time I turn on TV, every time I turn on Twitter, every time I see what's happening in communities around this country. And so I think I think that like I hope that I don't know if that's the most articulate way of saying it, but I think that I think that maybe the impression a lot of people are having is it is this sort of yin and yang between sort of fear and despair. And the thing I keep thinking about is this this moment is going to mean one of two things, right? It's either going to end up being the beginning of the end of the set of politics and policies that led to these to the situation involving George the murder of George Floyd, white supremacy in the White House, or it's the end of the beginning of that process. And what happens in the in this election and the next several months and in these protests is going to determine the answer to that question. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've had this sort of odd experience where over the weekend, um, you know, I experienced what's been happening largely through uh, what I saw on TV. And of course, I'm 
someone who just supports protests in principle. Um, and so I had that feeling. I also had the feeling of sort of living in Los Angeles and hearing helicopters overhead and seeing destruction on the local news and, and fires down the street and, and all those kinds of things. And then, you know, I, I, I decided on um, Tuesday to, uh, I, I learned that there was a, a protest at Mayor Garcetti's house, outside Mayor Garcetti's house, and he lives uh, close by. <laughs> so I decided to uh, head down to the protest before um, before curfew, because we have curfew here now. And, you know, the experience of being at a protest is so much different than the experience of, of just seeing it or, or, or supporting it. And, um, you know, it was incredibly peaceful and it was incredibly diverse, both in terms of race and in terms of age. There were young people, there were people who took their kids, there were older people who looked like they had been involved in protests forever. There were people who looked like it was their very first time going to a protest. And, you know, in this protest, um, the cops were all there and they were sort of uh, positioned throughout the crowd. But at one point, uh, the police officer in charge sort of called on them to all fall back towards Garcetti's house and everyone cheered and a number of speakers um, ended up speaking. And I didn't know it at the time. Tommy was also there. He was like across the street. And... Um, you know, he he could hear the speakers better than better than I could. And, you know, it was a lot of people talking about their first experience with police violence at very young ages when they were, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old. And, um, you know, it was like I said, it was peaceful and constructive. The problem is that the way that the police handled that protest which is they allowed the protesters to speak and to protest and to be there has been the exception and not the rule in too many places. And like we have seen a lot of times the police aren't anywhere near the people who are stealing and destroying shit. <laughs> like we saw this was going on in Santa Monica over the weekend that there was like looting and, 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 and uh, destruction in Santa Monica and the police were being aggressive on the protesters who were peaceful. Um, and how many different videos have we all seen now, you know? And the, the thing is the police, they know the cameras are on. They know people's cell phones are on. They know body cameras are on. They know that the mayors have told them not to use excessive force in many instances. And sometimes they know even their chiefs have told them not to, and they do it anyway. And, you know, what that tells you is for all of the videos we've seen and examples of, police officers taking a knee with the protesters. And there've been some really moving videos of police officers hugging protesters and listening, but there is clearly, clearly a systemic issue with policing and the culture and the laws around what police can do with regard to force. Um, huge problems that we are seeing unfold on our screens every single day. And black Americans in this country very rightly will say like, yeah, it's about time everyone noticed. We've been dealing with this for a very long time. But to your point about progress, I think what make, might make this time different is the fact that so many Americans are not just seeing images of fires and looting and vandalism on their screen. They are seeing police brutality against peaceful protesters all over the country. And I do think that has the potential to change things much in the way... <laughs> 
that, you know, in the civil rights movement, like the, one of the big turning points was most Americans watching, you know, John Lewis and uh, the people on the Edmund Pettus Bridge uh, in Selma get beaten to within an inch of their lives. And 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 that was actually the strategy of of King and the civil rights movement um, to it was a strategy of nonviolence. But they knew that through nonviolence, they might sort of attract violence on themselves. And when the country saw that, there was change. And I think we're, at least we're beginning to see signs of progress. Um, and I, I, you know, I think the other signs of progress I've been seeing have to do with changes in public opinion. Um, what what have you seen on that front that sort of made you more optimistic? I mean, we've seen just a fundamental change in views of police interactions with communities of color, particularly African-Americans, even go, even as recently as after Ferguson, where now you have majorities of Americans who believe that African-Americans are treated differently by the police and suffer at the hands of the police in ways that they're more likely to be the subject of police violence. And, that, and awareness is obviously the beginning of solving the problem, right? But we have we have a long way to go. And I just want to say one more thing about this, which is, it, you know, watching this over the last you know several days here is, it's just, it is this reminder that even if you are you know as a white American that you you know you can understand that systemic racism exists, you can be involved in trying to address it through, you know, pushing for policies to do it or helping elect politicians who will do it. You can, you know, believe you're, you know, you can be as woke as you can possibly be, but you still, this is the reminder is that even if we we intellectually understand that systemic racism is something that exists, we don't have to confront it every single day, right? right. It is, and like that is a level of exhaustion and anxiety that comes from worrying about your family walking out the door just could end up, you know, could end up in a confrontation with the police that could end their lives or change their lives. And we don't have to deal with that. And I think one of the things I think a lot of people have been struggling with is figuring out what's the constructive thing to do here, right? How can, you know, what can we do that is more than what we've been doing? And I, there, I don't have any good answer to that. And there's a lot, you know, we'll talk about it can't wait in a lot of other situations. But one thing that we've been thinking a lot about in our house is, like, how do you raise a child that is anti-racist, right? Like, there's been a lot, you know, you get children's books. There's a, you know, there's a, there's a whole genre of books that try to address diversity and, and the existence of racism and all of that. And most of them sort of abide by sort of this antiquated colorblind notion of race, right? And what, like, Hallie and I have been focusing a lot on is thinking you know, about, you know, what's the right way to talk to your children about this, right? Because even, you know, we have a two-year-old who's still, this is happening in a time in which she lives and it's, you know, we're talking about it around her and it's on TV sometimes when she's around. And, you know, well, you know, I just want to recommend like one resource to parents who are having that same thing, which is a organization, organization called The Conscious Kid, which mm-hmm. uh, will give you, which has a whole line of children's books to deal with this and gives people uh, guidance on how to talk to your kids about it. And it's been, you know, as people who think that we are on the enlightened side of these conversations, been a completely eye-opening experience about how to how to handle this with children. That's good. I'll be uh, I'll be needing that soon enough. <laughs> um, I, I do want to I, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, this goes to your point of how sort of 
attitudes are slowly changing on, on the public opinion front. I think just to give people an idea of sort of the contours of the political debate and the public opinion around police reform. I think traditionally, one of the biggest challenges with police reform has been um, that the police are the third most trusted institution in America. You know, Gallup found recently that they're far more trusted than the press or Congress. They're basically as trusted as almost as trusted as the military. Um, it's also true that even in 2019, majorities of white and black Americans favor hiring more cops for their communities. Um, and so there is this, this challenge of like policing as sort of a popular trusted institution among people. And yet, I do think it's worth pointing out like specifically some of the changes we're seeing just in the last couple weeks. Um, Civics just did a poll showing that support for Black Lives Matter is the highest it's been in three years of polling with 49% of people supporting the movement, 24% opposed. Um, majority of Americans have expressed support for the protesters this week. The percentage of people who think we don't take racism seriously enough has jumped 10 points just since last year. The percentage of people who think racism is a big problem is now 76% up from 51% in 2015. 78% said the anger sparked by the protest was justified. And I thought this was notable. Even after being reminded that some of these protests involved property destruction, 54% of people said the actions were at least partially justified. Um, and again, you would rightly look at those numbers and say, uh, those are not good enough, and they're not. But I think witnessing the change from even a couple years ago to now should tell us that those other numbers on policing that are challenging can be changed. And that's the work that's happening right now. And I do think that like, you know, the point of highlighting progress is not to um, make you satisfied, it's to make you determined that the work you're doing actually matters. Um, and that it can it can actually make a difference as exhausting as it may be. Um, okay, so let's talk about the lowest moment of Trump's presidency, which is saying a lot. Have we decided that this is the lowest? I am deciding that it is the lowest moment of his presidency so far, possibly even any presidency. I think like it is certainly up at the top of the list. We could have a separate debate on that. <laughs> Other no, I, I, I think other. I'd agree with you. I think, I mean, it would be as like, I think most people would have said the previous lowest moment was Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. And it would be as if after Trump saying that Nazi were very fine people dispatched uh, the U.S. military to go uh, put down the people protesting against the Nazis. I guess that. Yeah. Like, I mean, just uh, just I don't I mean, it's you can go through history of like. Bad, you know, bad moments from different presidencies. Yeah. And it feels like he combined so many of them into one, <laughs> into yeah. I mean, one look, bad moment. <laughs> there, there is not a right answer to this question. You know, no, the no, there's not. Japanese Americans or World War II high right. on that list. Everything. That's up there. But Kent the State, fact that it is right? We're all... in the conversation is what says everything. It's uh, Yeah, the fact that it's up there. On Monday, a group of peaceful protesters across from the White House in Lafayette Park were cleared away with tear gas so that Donald Trump could walk across the street to St. John's Church, pull a Bible out of Ivanka's $1,500 handbag, and pose for a fucking picture. 
The photo op came after Trump gave a speech in the Rose Garden where he announced the deployment of elements of the 82nd Airborne Division to Washington and threatened to use the Insurrection Act of 1807, a rarely used law which allows the president to deploy the armed forces on American soil in order to keep civil order. Here is a clip from the Trump speech. But in recent days, our nation has been gripped by professional anarchists, violent mobs, arsonists, looters, criminals, rioters, Antifa, and others. These are not acts of peaceful protest. These are acts of domestic terror, the destruction of innocent life, and the spilling of innocent blood is an offense to humanity and a crime against God. If a city or state refuses to take the actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them. I want the organizers of this terror to be on notice that you will face severe criminal penalties and lengthy sentences in jail. I am your president of law and order. <laughs> what was going through your mind as you watched this thing unfold on Monday evening? I mean, that it's almost hard to believe it's real because it's not just Trump's remarks, right? If you were watching right. this in real time on cable television, it began with U.S. federal law enforcement tear gassing and shooting uh, projectiles at peaceful protesters immediately prior to a national address. And that is a space that you and I know well. They were in Lafayette Park directly across the street from the White House, which is a place that is famous for hosting pro many, many protests over the years. It is where citizens often gather to send messages to their president. Um, from protests around environmental policies. Um, I remember very clearly during the Obama administration when the president was giving a set of remarks in the Rose Garden about uh, Syria, hearing the protesters who were arguing against uh, military action in Syria while standing in the Rose Garden listening to the president. It is where people gathered to uh, celebrate after the Supreme Court um, legalized same-sex marriage. Yeah, And to see that space be pushed, that that was no longer a place where peaceful American citizens could express their opinion on the government seems something that was so contrary to what we at least try to tell ourselves this country is, that it was incredibly disturbing and, and sort of hard to believe it was real. It was sort of the some of the worst nightmares about what a Trump president would look like coming real before our eyes. Yeah. That was that was that last thing was my thought exactly is that I, we were first of all it was just like what the fuck is happening right now what is he doing like what is this speech you know and so there's like a lot of confusion around it but as it as, as it started to unfold and you're right like that clip you just hear Trump but when you watch it on TV there's a split screen of the protesters getting gassed and cleared and and then you hear him speaking and you can sort of hear the commotion in the background. And it's this very sort of like eerie um, scene that, ex that that I thought the same thing. I'm like, this is this is the worst nightmare of what people imagined would happen if this man became president. And, and now it's come true. Um, so I think the best 
the best reporting on how this all came to be came from uh, the New York Times. They had a, a really sort of long piece on this the other day. And it, and it sort of revealed, like, as with everything Donald Trump does, it's like one part dictator, two parts dipshit. <laughs> You know, like, like, that's and great so, alliterations, like, Mr. Speechwriter. That is excellent. <laughs> it's just, no, it's just, like that's what it, everything is like that. Yeah. And and I, I, you know, like the further we get out from it, you look back on it and you hear all this reporting about how like incompetent these fucking buffoons are. But this all started apparently with Trump getting angry about stories over the weekend that accurately portrayed him as hiding in the White House over the weekend. Um, and noted that he was even taken to the uh, secret presidential bunker on Friday uh, because of they were worried about the protests, and he was so I think, angry John, about that's this. Deeply, uh, that's deeply unfair. Donald Trump told us, oh, that's right, that's award-winning right. objective journalist Brian Kilmeade, that it just happened to be that a previously scheduled tour of the bunker was happening at the exact moment of the protests. So, like, <laughs> what a, what a coincidence. As that, yeah. As as we all know, uh, every president must inspect the bunker. That is part of their job. That is when they take the oath. Part of the oath is to inspect the presidential bunker on the fourth year of their presidency at a certain hour. Yes. Um, it's right there in the Constitution. So that's what he was yes. doing. Um, I mean, like, I what 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 was your reaction to the fact that like the guy was pissed about media coverage, and so as a result. That's how he ended up tear gassing his own citizens and threatening to turn their military against them. I mean, it it's like we previously said, this is perhaps the natural end result of having a president like Trump. And when you, you know, you point out that it's, you know, some part dipshit and that should be give comfort to no one. Right. <laughs> the history of fascism in the world is driven by a bunch of clowns. Like countries fall into authoritarianism, not by virtue of oftentimes some massive strategic plan, it's they stumble ass backwards into it. And that's what we're looking at right now. And we should say this as clear as possible. The Trump administration tear gassed thousands of peaceful protesters so the president could have a brief photo op. That is what happened. And I just think sometimes it is easy to get caught up in the absurdity of the Trump administration, the fact that he walked there and Ivanka Trump kept the Bible in her $1,500 handbag. And we'll talk maybe about this a little bit, but Secretary of Defense thought he was going to visit a broken toilet. And for some reason, the chairman of Joint Chiefs was wearing his military uniform as if he was on the battlefront in Iraq. And all it all seems so absurd and so poorly thought out. And it's a bunch of just absolute morons at heart here. but. You have to say what actually happened because it should shock the conscience. It should absolutely yeah. shock the conscience. Well, there's, I mean, I think it's helpful to separate this into two parts, right? There is the planned photo op at the church, which is like absurdity that also turned into a lot of people getting hurt um, because they were tear gassed. And then there is the policy decision to threaten the nation's governors that if they do not get the situation in their cities under control, that Donald Trump will use the Insurrection Act to deploy the military against American citizens, which I think is, you know, in some ways that threat was almost overshadowed by the absurdity of and, and violence that went along with the photo op, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, 
like per usual, and I have been guilty of this over the last few days, is it's easy to chase the shiny, absurd part of Trumpism and ignore the true threat. And obviously, real people were injured, and there was a real violation of the First Amendment and basic democratic principles in, in what Trump did. But we should not be distracted by him holding the Bible potentially upside down and all the other absurdities of that story. But they should not allow that to distract us from what is actually at play here, which is the president threatening to deploy the military to put down peaceful protests in this country that he does not like. And like, you know, a couple of other things to point out here. Um, we later find out that it's, or at least the reports are that it was Bill Barr, the attorney general who ordered the protesters um, cleared away. And apparently there was a plan to expand the security perimeter around the White House that hadn't been carried out yet. And Barr realized this and knew that the president wanted to go make the photo op. So he ordered law enforcement officers on the ground to complete the expansion of, that's what they're calling it, of the security perimeter, which meant dispersing protesters. Um, But because there wasn't enough time to do so before the president's planned statement, they had the split screen. Um, So you got built, first of all, and, you know, a a friend of ours, um, (laughs) Nick Shapiro, who worked in the White House, with us and worked on a lot of national security issues. He was like, my big question is, what the hell is the attorney general of the United States doing in charge of the park police, um, all these cops? Like that, that, what is he doing in charge of all of these troops? Yeah. Like it's like, and now, and to this day in Washington DC right now, there are soldiers deployed in DC with no nameplate, you don't know what organization they're from. They don't tell you when reporters asked where they're from, what branch they're from. So it is basically like Bill Barr's standing private army that he is controlling right now is the attorney general of the United States, which is the stuff of fucking dictatorships. I mean, we should note that the attorney general is in charge of the Department of Justice. He has no authority over the park police, no authority over the Secret Service. He is just essentially operating as the president's henchman, ordering law enforcement about law enforcement, of which he has no authority, statutory, constitutional or anything else. Like the wheels are off the fucking bus here, people. <laughs> they are. I also loved officials privately conceded that little thought was given to what Mr. Trump would do once he actually got to the church. That like <laughs> that, the, was my, that was just, the, you know, as usual with these fucking assholes, it's like. So he has this plan, you know, he wants to he wants to use the Insurrection Act. Basically, he is persuaded by some to not use that, to just threaten to use it. And so they're like, well, what else are you going to do? And then around lunchtime, some combination, we don't know, of Ivanka, Hope Hicks, Jared, uh, Trump himself come up with this harebrained scheme to go to St. John's. And the reason they wanted to go, so St. John's Church, as people should know, like every president has been there. Usually there's some kind of a service there on Inauguration Day um, that presidents attend. It is like a very famous church in D.C. The basement of it was briefly on fire on Sunday night uh, because of some of the looting. And so Trump thought they would go there and say, like, you know, this is a sacred church and it was burned by Antifa and all that bullshit um, and get this photo op out of it. And they thought nothing beyond that. (laughs) There was no thought beyond that. The thing, I mean, my first read of that story, and we were texting about it when it came out the other night, 
was laughter because like what a bunch of fucking clowns these people are. And there's like great. And just from a point of consumers of journalism, it's an incredible story filled with amazing tidbits like the price of Ivanka Trump's handbag. She just Ivanka Trump Orthodox Jew who happened to be carrying a Bible in her handbag just as Trump arrived. Right. Is one example. And then all the yahoos in the Trump administration insisted on being in the photo op. I've never seen a photo op of the White House press secretary before, but Kelly McEnany put herself right in it with the secretary of defense and a bunch of other no named white people. Um, And but the thing that is just like infuriating to me as someone who has worked in that building as you have is we are governed by the dumbest people possible. (laughs) It is the family of a dumb man. It is the people who would have been cut from the JV team of the Republican Party in charge of the government. And they promise they live in this bubble of ignorance and insecurity that is so tight that they think they're smart. Like they thought this was a brilliant fucking idea. They were actually competing for who would get credit for this idea when they didn't even, it's like they were trying to do the alphabet and they tripped at C. Like it was just so frustrating with how dumb they are. And like, and it like in this case, it has consequences, but it's also directly related to why one in four working Americans is out of work and we've been in quarantine for months because they're we have dumb people not just in charge of photo ops, but in charge of pandemic response. Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. So let's talk about the reaction, um, which was not quite what the White House had hoped. Um, (laughs) So so we had a handful of Republican senators criticize Trump. Um, The rest defended him or gave reporters the old uh, I didn't see it answer. Um, The the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, General Milley, and Secretary of Defense Mark Esper have said they didn't really know the photo op was happening. You mentioned Esper thought he was going to inspect a vandalized bathroom, which is a it's, it's an, an important part of the duties of the Secretary of Defense. Again, is toilet again, repair. laid out, laid out in the Constitution. Yes. Um, and then uh, Esper announced the next day at a press conference that he's now opposed to using the military against American citizens right now. He's opposed to the Insurrection Act, um, which reportedly, of course, because he said that, got him in some hot water with Trump. Um, military leaders like former Joint Chiefs Chairman Mike Mullen and General John Allen have criticized Trump. And then yesterday, General Jim Mattis who served as Donald Trump's Secretary of Defense, released a statement saying that he was, quote, angry and appalled, accused Trump of being the first president who purposely tries to divide Americans and wrote, quote, never did I dream that troops taking that same oath would be ordered under any circumstance to violate the constitutional rights of their fellow citizens, much less to provide a bizarre photo op for the elected commander in chief with military leadership standing alongside. Um, what is your what is your reaction to the reaction, Ben? I think there is like I don't really care about the Republican 
uh, senators who had, you know, like Susan Collins, who had brief, sad comments about this. Like, you know what? Yeah. You have constitutional powers. Fucking do something about it. Subpoena someone. Have a hearing. Like, you have real authority. You had your chance. You had your chance. One of you voted for impeachment and one former Republican voted for impeachment in the House. That was it. Y'all had your chance. Even if you didn't want to impeach him, which is a basically absurd proposition, right now you could do something about this. You could yep. use your powers to get, you have checks and you have balances and you have done neither at any point over the last three and a half years. I think the military criticism is powerful. I think it certainly influenced Mark Esper to very briefly um, un- try to undo the damage that he was a part of. Um, look, I think General Mattis has been tripping over the bar of low expectations for being um, a important figure and a heroic figure in the Trump era. But his comments are powerful. They are you know, relatively unequivocal. And I think they could have real impact, not just on other Republicans who may have private concerns about Trump, who may be able to develop the physical ability to express them publicly, um, but also on voters who are souring on Trump. So I think that like the Mattis moment is significant. Yeah, I would say that I, I felt mildly better over the last couple of days watching some people come out and speak their mind about this. And I'd say, my, again, we are tripping over the bar of low expectations here. But Trump has clearly done enormous damage to our institutions, and he's threatening to do even more damage right now. Um, and by trying to sort of um, polarize the military and, and, and send the military into American cities by treating uh, the art, you know, the military and treating the police as like his own private security force. All the shit he's been doing is very scary. His attacks on the press and the institutions of the, the media. But I think that over the last couple of days, you've seen that like while our institutions have been damaged and remain threatened, they are still holding up and in some cases pushing back. Um, but I, I don't know. I think there's there's a real fear that I still have. I mean, fucking. Hogan Gidley, the White House, one of the White House press spokesmen this morning said, uh, all options are on the table with the military, which is something you'd say about fucking Iraq or Afghanistan or some other country that we might be in conflict with and not about sending troops into American cities. Um, so, you know, there's still, a, I have a, a lot of alarm <laughs> that, um, like you said, we could sort of stumble into something very dark and scary here. And, and we already have. But seeing and again like thanks mattis for speaking up now you had like a couple years but whatever anyone anyone who can speak up now speak up now whatever whoever is in a position of power or influence in elected office or not elected office like this is the fucking time say something and if you've been late in the past and you haven't been with us in the past like that's fine we can talk about that later <laughs> for now now you gotta step up I mean, yes, we should encourage people to speak on now, but do you think Mattis has been looking for the phone number to, for the Atlantic for two and a half years now? I was just, I mean, it is like. It's like, <laughs> open your DMs, Jeff Goldberg. We have people who want to talk such, to you. Again, back into the absurdity of like Washington culture, you know, and like sort of like the everything is so insular and like people don't understand the way like media and communication work. Like, 
all right, like I'm gonna like call up Jeff Gold and look, we love the Atlantic. Great. <laughs> like I'm gonna call up Jeff Goldberg and land my statement there. You know, like there's like platforms that can re- like you know like fucking Candace Owens is on Facebook with like 27 million views saying horrible things about George Floyd because that's how fucking information travels now. But we've got like uh, we landed an op-ed at the Atlantic to speak out against our authoritarian decline. Yes, it's, <laughs> it's like-, like put yourself on video. Let's put some money behind it. Let's put it on TV as an advertisement. That'll get people to hear it. Certainly all the people we're talking about have a phone with a camera in their pocket with access to the internet. You don't need the Atlantic. Take a video, send it out. Yeah, you don't need, this is not like the days of like going to Catherine Graham's house and hoping she'll write an op-ed in the Sunday's paper, you know? Like, what the- <laughs> Well, as it turns out, he could have written just about anything about anything with full of lies and conspiracy theories and the New York Times would have printed it. So he probably didn't right, know that yeah, was available we to him. We haven't even talked about fucking Tom Cotton. I don't even, I mean, that is just... We'll say that for another time. I mean, to your point, like, I think over the course of the last three and a half years, you know, there are people on Twitter, people we work with, people in our lives who often have a reaction that may seem hyperbolic to what Trump does. It usually falls in this narrative of some master plan that Trump has, right, where he, uh, you know, is like stealing and he's going to move the election date or he's doing all these things. And when it turns out, as you point out, it's a blend of incompetence and malice always. And Trump's not a mastermind, yeah. right? As we've said before, he's a he's a criminal, but he's not a criminal mastermind. Um, but I do think that it's easy to miss the threat because of Trump's stupidity. And so if you do like uh, an authoritarian blind taste test of what's happened in the last few weeks, like <laughs> imagine you, uh, you know, turn on your computer, you click on a new site and you read something that says something like in a country where a quarter of the working population had lost their job in the last few months, in large part to government mismanagement, the president who rose to power on national sentiment, despite receiving fewer votes than his opponent today, branded the millions of peaceful protesters to be violent terrorists and dispatched his secret police to put down the unrest. Like, if you read that, you would cancel your plans to travel that country. You would ask your, if you had family who lived there, you would say, leave quickly. The UN would be working on a resolution. The United States Department under a normal Secretary of State would be writing a letter about it. Maybe the President of the United States would call that person, that leader, to try to tone them down. And so there is this risk that we, by trying to not be the people who overreact, we, are, we do sort of become the frog in the water that's being uh, heated yeah. slowly. The other thing I noticed was like while they were clearing um, Lafayette Park, um, one of the police punched a cameraman in the face and it turned out to be like an Australian crew. So like Australia's doing the story about how their journalists were in America and were like beaten by the police. Like this is can you just fucking imagine what the rest of the world is thinking about us right now? Like we seem like an authoritarian country right now. It's very, very scary. And we may be. On the other hand, we should talk about the political fallout for Trump. Um, So the Times said that the president's advisors believe that the photo app would, quote, resonate with many middle Americans turned off by scenes of urban riots and looting that have accompanied nonviolent protests. It has not worked out like that so far. Uh, Trump's disapproval rating is now higher than any president at this point in his first term. The number of Americans who believe the country is on the wrong track has reached record levels. Joe Biden is now leading Trump by nearly eight points nationally and by about three to four points in swing states like Wisconsin and Arizona. 
Uh, and last night, the Times ran a piece saying that in the Trump campaign's private polling, he's well behind Biden. And they're now starting to worry about states like Ohio, Iowa and Georgia. Um, Dan, there were some concerns when the protest began that Trump would recycle Nixon's law and order strategy from 1968 to scare off a bunch of suburbanites, particularly white suburban women. Last night's Fox poll of Wisconsin showed that suburban women are now going for Joe Biden 64 to 29 percent. Why do you think this isn't working for him, at least so far? Obviously, it's early. This is a snapshot in time. We could get a lot more data as time goes on. It's it is the 1968 parallel is such an imperfect one on a set of very obvious levels. I mean, most importantly, Nixon was the challenger. So when he was saying that law and order had crumbled, he was saying that the Democrats in charge of the government had lost control. Donald Trump is not the challenger. He's the incumbent. He is announcing he's a law and order president and saying that law and order has crumbled. So he is like this. He has never adjusted to being the person in charge. He doesn't know how to make a case for things that he is doing. So that's step one. Step two is the electorate is very different. Consolidating a like the silent majority was another way of saying the white majority in America in 1968. The, The numbers are very different. Consolidating the white vote does not deliver you the election in the way it did back then. It's just the politics are very different. And Donald Trump is, he's basically doing Nixonian Mad Libs. He's just spouting out, like he's tweeting out in all caps, silent majority, law and order. Like there is a there is a world in which a more deft demagogue could use this to his political advantage, but Donald Trump is not deft enough to do that thus far. Yeah, I mean, you can't run as the candidate of law and order when you're the incumbent who has shown no respect for the law and no ability to maintain order. <laughs> like it is just, you know, I, I do think it, it is impossible to overstate the difference between Nixon as the challenger and Trump as the incumbent, um, which seems pretty simple. But it's just when people in the country who were seeing unrest, he's the guy in charge. Not only has he not fixed it, he's made it worse. And everyone's seen that he's made it worse. And to your point about the suburbs, uh, the changing demographics too, like the suburbs look different than they did in 1968. The suburbs today are much more diverse than they were back then. And in addition, the the views on race among white college-educated Democrats who populate the suburbs have also liberalized considerably since the late 60s. So you have suburbs that are much more diverse, that are much more liberal, at least especially on their views on race and social issues than they ever were in the late 60s, um, which is maybe one reason why um, this has not worked so well for uh, for Donald Trump. I mean, the, the other part of this that's important is social media matters here in two ways. One, like there's a whole conversation about how people who get their news primarily from Facebook are getting completely incorrect information about what's happening. Um, but more broadly, people are able to see, even if for a period of time, and I think it's less less true now, cable and local news were covering the the looting and you know sort of that the other sorts of behavior disproportionate to the small percentage of activity was compared to the millions of peaceful protesters. You now have thousands of other ways to get that message out. People are able to see the peaceful protesters. They're able to put it in a context they would not before, and that and that is very helpful. You, you're sort of not no, you're no longer held captive to the 
television news axiom that if it bleeds, it leads, right? There's still an opportunity to get a full or 360 degree picture if they choose to do so. What are your thoughts on just sort of the size of Biden's lead right now, um, you know, driven largely by sort of uh, worse approval for Trump? Um, Do you think that is, I mean, obviously it's too early to say, we have five months to go um, until November, which is a fucking lifetime. As I was thinking about, like, it's probably as much time between now and the election as it was between impeachment and now, which (laughs) seems terrifying. It's been, Um, so here's one way to think about it that uh, I saw someone on Twitter say yesterday, which is, it's five months the election and the Iowa caucus was four months ago. Oh my God. (laughs) Oh my God. Um, But, you know, I mean, Dave Weigel pointed out the other day on on Twitter that like, you know, the eight point lead that Biden has right now is is much bigger than Clinton's lead at this point, even Obama's lead in eight and 12. Now, I know you were pointing out that they were still in the middle of a primary. So that's one reason that their leads were narrow. But um, obviously, this isn't something we should get too excited about. But what are are your thoughts on it? I mean, Biden has certainly greatly strengthened his position politically since the pandemic began. Right. And, and like, like that is like the polling average is very clear. The swing state averages are very clear. I think the question we do not know the answer to is, is this going to revert to the mean? Right. And if it reverting to the mean means people are, we're going to sort of resort ourselves in our partisan identities where we were, which what I think means is that Biden maintains a, popular vote lead larger than Hillary Clinton's, and we remain in a very narrow electoral college situation, right? Mm-hmm. Where maybe Biden's slight, a slight favorite, but it's very close. Like even, like it's, it does not seem likely to me that Biden is going to win the national vote by nine points and he's going to win Wisconsin by nine points or, yeah. you know, win, you know, he's ahead, you know, tied in Texas and ahead in Georgia and ahead in Ohio and some of these states like that. That seems unlikely to me. Like someone asked me the other day if I thought that this was the breaking moment for sort of the partisan lock that we've had on this country since, you know, go back to 2012, frankly. And it seems very similar to the conversations that we had right when the Access Hollywood tape came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, like, I think these are very different elections. I think Biden has some strengths that Hillary Clinton did not have available to her because this is essentially a two-person race. Um, by, you know, and a whole bunch of other things happening, but like these Republicans tend to be very disturbed by things and then go right back to where they were before, um, down the memory hole. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I do want to get to Joe Biden's reactions to Trump and the protest this week. But before that, um, let's take a minute to talk about the reaction of his old boss and ours, Barack Obama. Uh, the former president participated in an online town hall on Wednesday, hosted by the, my brother's keeper Alliance. In his remarks, Obama called for police reform and expressed support for the people who've been participating in the protests. Let's take a listen. I I want to speak directly to the young men and women of color in this country, uh, who, as Plan just so eloquently described, have witnessed too much violence and too much death. And too often, some of that violence has come uh, from folks who were supposed to be serving and protecting you. Um, I want you to know that you matter. I want you to know that your lives matter, that your dreams matter. And when I go home and I look at the faces of my daughters, Sasha and Malia, and I look at my nephews and nieces, I see limitless potential that deserves to flourish and thrive. 
and you should be able to learn and make mistakes and live a life of joy without having to worry about what's going to happen when you walk to the store or go for a jog or are driving down the street uh, or looking at some birds in a park. Uh, and, and, and so I hope that you also feel help, hopeful, even as you may feel angry, because you have the power to make things better and you have helped to make the entire country feel uh, as if this is something that's got to change. You, you've communicated a sense of urgency uh, that is as powerful and as transformative as anything that I've seen uh, in recent years. What'd you think of that? <laughs> you know, people always say to us, like, why doesn't Obama speak out more? We need We need Obama right now. And our response usually is that like what's like we're not we're not one Obama speech away from Trump folding up tent and returning to Mar-a-Lago, right? Like it's yeah. But having said that, it was great to hear from Barack Obama in this moment. Yeah, it always is. I mean, I'm I, I've always been a fan of him coming out and speaking, knowing that it's not going to be the thing that um, destroys Trump. But I think it just I think it also helps remind people what a good leader can sound like. Even a leader that, and you know, you hear Republicans say this all the time. They were not very nice to him when he was president. But um, they'll say like, wow, it's really nice to hear just a normal president who is caring and thinks about people and is articulate and can speak, and, you know, can speak in full sentences and doesn't sound like he's unstable all the time. You know, like all of these things that we have been missing for the last several years. Um, you know, and I just... I, I, I'm, I'm very happy. He also focused on, you know, for all the pain that's out there, trying to sort of instill that sense of hope in the young people who are, um, who are out there working so hard, which, you know, we talked about earlier, um, because I think it can be very easy to sort of slip into uh, cynicism and despair at a time like this, even if you are doing the work. And he's always very good at reminding us that, the whole story of America has been sort of two steps forward, one steps back, you know, and um, and that there's there's plenty to be hopeful about and to continue fighting for. So it was it, it was it was good to hear him. It was good to hear him. It was. What did you think? You know, I think in his endorsement of Biden um, and in those commencements, people sort of uh, you know saw a lot of contrast with Trump. And he really didn't, I think some people probably expected him to say something yesterday and he didn't, I thought it was fine. Like I didn't think he needed the contrast with Trump uh, yesterday because I think that the moment was so much bigger and more important than that. But I don't know what you thought. I mean, you know this better probably than any other person walking the planet with possible exceptions of Cody and Ben is Obama has a purpose when he speaks. Yeah. Right. And his purpose here was to speak to the young people who are out there protesting, to the organizers, because he sees himself in them, right? Yeah. And he like he wanted to put what they were doing into the arc of historical societal change in America. And he wanted to, you know, speak to them as someone who, you know, when he was a very famous United States senator, would be followed around when he went into stores because he was a black man in America. You know, and he has spoken about that in the context of these incidents of racial violence in this country. 
And but the thing that I also took from it that was really important, which is reminded me of something our friend Alyssa tweeted yesterday, which is uh, give me a community organizer as president every time, which is yeah. as a community organizer, he knows that progress is hard to come by and you take it where you can get it, which is why he had very specific things that he wanted mayors to do and he wanted the protesters to ask mayors to do. And I, like, I thought that was very notable that like we have a lot of work to do to deal with the systemic racism that is driving everything that has happened here. But there are some things we can do right now that will make things better. And we got, and we, we should take those now and keep fighting for the other stuff. Yeah. I mean, and you know, one of the people who joined him uh, on that live stream was uh, Brittany Packnett and, you know, talked about eight can't wait, uh, which is sort of eight sets of reforms that mayors can implement right now um, regarding the use of force. Uh, that can reduce violence by up to 72%. And um, he is just, you know, he is always inspiring, but he's also, um, the organizer in him also makes him pragmatic. And he knows that organizing requires strategy and discipline as much as it requires passion and energy. And, you know, at one point he sort of took on the like, I hear some people saying uh, voting doesn't matter as much as activism or activism is more important. And it's not an either or, it's a both and. Right. You need to be on the streets and then you and then you need to translate that energy and that passion into laws and reforms and people that you elect um, into office. And the activism doesn't end on Election Day. Right. Right. Like, it does. You have to yeah. keep pushing after that. Right. All right. Let's talk about Biden. On Tuesday, he delivered a major speech in Philadelphia where he attacked Donald Trump's response to the protest and proposed a number of policing reforms. Let's take a listen. The president held up the Bible at St. John's Church yesterday. I just wish he opened it once in a while, instead of brandishing it. If he opened it, he could have learned something. They're all called to love one another as we love ourselves. It's really hard work, but it's the work of America. Donald Trump is interested in doing that work. Instead, he's preening and sweeping away all the guardrails that have long protected our democracy, guardrails that have helped make possible this nation's path to a more perfect union. A union that constantly requires reform and rededication. And yes, the protest from voices that are mistreated, ignored, left out or left behind. But it is a union, a union worth fighting for. And that's why I'm running for president. In addition to the Bible, the president might also want to open the U.S. Constitution once in a while. If he did, he'd find a thing called the First Amendment. And what it says in the beginning, it says the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition their government for redress of grievances. That's kind of an essential notion built into this country. Mr. President, that's America. That's America. No horses rising up on their hind legs to push back peaceful protest. Not using the American military to move against the American people. This is a nation of values. Our freedom to speak is a cherished knowledge that lives inside every American almost from the time you're a kid. What do you think of the speech? It was a real reminder that for the last three and a half years, we haven't had a president, right? Yeah. There is someone who 
sleeps in the president's bed, somebody who on the president, flies on the president's plane, someone who sits at the desk of the president's office, but is not president. Like that is the speech the president should have given after all of this happened. And Trump did not do that, right? He did the exact opposite of that. And the visuals were really interesting because we've been we've had to since the day Biden became our nominee, we have essentially been looking at him in front of the same bookshelves in yeah. this very conscribed environment. And when he's standing there, you know, with the flags and with the imagery and the podium, you could see him as the president that we need right at this moment. Yeah, that was just from a, like a speech visuals perspective. Um, that was my first reaction. It was it was so good to see him out of the house. <laughs> Um, you know, and just see him at a podium and see, you know, and like, I, I do think, and, you know, we'll talk about this in a second, but I think that's sort of going to be the strategy going forward for that campaign. Um, I thought in terms of the content of the speech, he really met the moment. Um, and there is, you know, I've noticed a bit of a transformation going on in the Biden campaign and with Biden for quite some time now, which is, and you saw it in the speech, he he wasn't just taking on Trump. He was taking on Trumpism altogether. And, you know, he he named sort of the selfishness and fear that have loomed over national life for the last three years as two of the enemies we're facing bigger than Trump. Um, he's also in that speech framing the election as a definitional battle over what kind of America we want to be um, and sort of wrapping history into that, as Obama always used to do as well. And as the best presidents do. And so basically saying to people, yes, we are the country of slavery and racism and Bull Connor and George Wallace. That, that's part of who we are also. But we're also Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King Jr. And he listed all these sort of um, people throughout American history. And that is a much truer and bigger framing of the election that significantly raises the stakes for people and the urgency. And it gets to, I think, something you've been saying, which is, Yes, voters may end up seeing this as a referendum on Donald Trump's presidency, but to sort of meet the moment and the enormity of the challenges we're facing, Biden has to paint a vision of two different kinds of countries for people to get them to go out and vote so that it's not just Donald Trump is bad, but what Donald Trump stands for and what Donald Trump is the logical conclusion of is what we're fighting against in this election and that our version of America, the best of America that you can sort of see throughout different moments in history is what this election is about, is, is what we're fighting for in this election. And he, I think he did that incredibly well. Yeah. And it's tied to who he, who he authentically is as a person and his personal experiences, right? He is a person who authentically understands pain and tragedy and how you recover from it. And that came through the speech. I thought it was a, you know, one of the best speeches I've ever seen Biden give. I thought it was, it was, it, it met the moment from a view of the presidential leadership were lacking, but also had a very specific narrative about Trump. Right. It really leaned into the Trump first America last message that we've been talking about. And th that's sort of the first time I've seen him make that case in such an explicit way. And I I, I was um, very I was moved by the speech and I was, you know, maybe yeah. it really it, it rate like you're exactly right. For a lot of the primary, the stakes of the election were just like who can beat Trump. 
and whoever was doing the best in the polls could be Trump. And two, I think sometimes the Biden campaign leaned too far into that argument. But this, yeah, they did. this, this made this, this was a speech that raised the stakes and met the moment of what we're facing as a country. And I thought it was great. I, I mean. I mean, later in the speech, you know, he says, I wish I could say this hate began with Donald Trump and will end with him. It didn't and it won't. American history isn't a fairy tale with a guaranteed happy ending. The presidency is a big job. Nobody will get everything right. I won't either. But I promise you this. I won't traffic in fear and division. I won't blame others. I'll never forget that the job isn't about me. It's about you. It's about us. I mean, he, he comes close to basically Bernie Sanders slogan at the end of that. <laughs> and right. at the beginning, saying that hate didn't begin and won't end with Donald Trump is almost a refutation of his earlier sort of campaign message. Um, but I think it is it is the right one for the moment. And I think he can sort of fill that role very well. I mean, we should talk about sort of like the policy transformation that may or may not come with it. Uh, the Washington Post wrote about this after the speech. Quote, Biden has pointed towards a transformational era in which government would play a bigger role in carrying the country's public health, economic and racial woes. Far from the incremental administration he promised on the primary campaign trail, Biden now offers Franklin Delano Roosevelt, architect of the post-Great Depression New Deal, as a role model for tackling the damage wrought by the coronavirus pandemic that has killed more than 100,000 Americans and put millions out of work, as well as the enduring effects of systemic racism um, being changed by a newly energized protest movement. And of course, in this speech this week, he talked about some police reforms like banning police from using chokeholds, the demilitarization of police forces and creating model use of force standards. He said in the first 100 days of his presidency, he'd create a national oversight commission for policing and called on every police department in the country to review their hiring, training, and de-escalation practices. What do you think of sort of the policy angle in this? How do you how do you read this transformation? Or is it a transformation? I think it is certainly a transformation of necessity, right? I think Biden is, I'm not saying he's being, he's putting the cart before the horse here, but I think is someone who has been in government his whole life and worked in the White House for eight years, he spends a lot of time thinking about what he would do as president, how to have a successful presidency, how to actually deal with the set of challenges that he's going to face. And like Obama, Biden is going to enter the White House as the president of a country that looks very different than the one he hoped to lead when he started his campaign. And, you know, and I think what has always been true about Biden, it is the point that Elizabeth Warren made about him and her endorsement, which is he is someone who was always willing to revisit his prior beliefs. And yep. he had one view about how to do things prior to the situation we're in, and now he's adjusting that. And what that's going to mean in terms of policy is something that you know we're going to, I think everyone should stay tuned for. People should be realistic that it doesn't mean that he's all of a sudden going to adopt all of Bernie Sanders' policies. But I think you can expect that he's going to take a different and more aggressive approach. And if and when this election is won, it's going to be incumbent upon everyone involved and all and all the activists out there to hold them accountable for pushing for those things that that they believe we need that sort of FDR like presidency. Yeah, and it is, you know, it, this this entire sort of episode is a lesson for activists and organizers that, you know, one of the big reasons that Joe Biden will adopt some of these police reforms and criminal justice reforms is because you pushed because you were in the streets and it works, right? Like it doesn't, it's not going to work on Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump, the second term of Donald Trump doesn't matter. You know, you're going to be in the streets. He's going to tear gas you. Uh, Joe Biden as president, when you push and you go into the streets and you protest and you meet with him and you push him and you, like, it's going to work. It won't work as much as you might like, but it will work and you will see progress. 
Um, and I think I think it's it's a good lesson for for everyone. Um, where does Biden go from here? How does he keep getting attention? How does he sort of broaden and sharpen his argument against Trump uh, and for himself on sort of the whole range of issues? This is a huge challenge for anyone taking on an incumbent president. And it's particularly a challenge taking on Trump, who has the world's largest media platform, cable TV, the entire digital ads economy all on his side here. And, you know, Biden suffered from this. Here you have the person that polls say is most likely to be the next president of the United States has a town hall event on Monday on the very issue that is dominating news coverage. And none of the cable networks took him live. They took his speech the next yeah. day live, but they did not take that one. And Because everyone, everyone yelled at them. <laughs> yes. If Donald Trump had been the challenger against an incumbent Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton in that situation, they 100% would have taken him live. And so that is the challenge for Biden. And it's going to require developing strategies that we've talked about a thousand times that go beyond just simply relying on the benevolence of CNN and MSCBC to carry his events live. But it's also about making news, right? There was real news in that speech. And he's going to have some big opportunities coming up. Most notably, Friday is uh, Jobs Day, where the jobs numbers will come out. It'll probably be the worst unemployment report in American history. And it's an opportunity to talk about where we go from here and how that would be different. And like he will certainly benefit from being out of his house. Um, but he now has a wave of momentum. He has a press narrative based on the polls, which says that he is likely to be the next president, and therefore deserves coverage. And so they're going to have to keep building on that. But it's going to have to give people – Donald Trump can show up and get coverage because there is always a chance Donald Trump will stumble into making news by saying something insane. People don't think that about Joe Biden. Newsmakers do not. So he has to have something to say, tell people what he's going to say in advance, and sort of work the system to ensure that he's, quote unquote, making news, which is a hard thing to do because inventing news to talk about every day is quite challenging, as we know better than most. Yeah, it is. I mean, you can always react to whatever crazy thing Donald Trump is doing, which will get you news and get you covered. But you're right, short of like new policy announcements, which at some point in the campaign run out, you know, you have to figure out ways, more creative ways to make news. I do think, you know, as the race is joined, he'll become the nominee, he'll select his VP. Like it it gets a little easier as the race heats up to sort of get covered because they'll just cover every day as what Trump said, what Biden said. But he has handled the response to this latest crisis like, you know, exactly as I hoped he would. You know, I don't, yeah. I, don't I, th- I think they did a very, very good job. Yeah, there's going to be some there are going to be some empty spots in The New York Times op-ed page for unsolicited advice for the Biden campaign <laughs> right now because they had had a yeah. very, very, uh, a very strong week. And for all of the hand wringing that everyone and source included have done, we should they should also get a pat on the back for uh, meeting the moment. Yeah. And look. There will be other times that will be much tougher, right? The media narrative does not stay. Donald Trump is screwed and look at Joe Biden surging from fucking June (laughs) till November. Impossible. It'll change 40 times (laughs) until then. And so, you know, the real test of the campaign will be how you meet the tougher moments when the narrative turns against you. I can already hear myself screaming about when the Quinnipiac poll goes from Biden plus 10 to Biden plus five. And all the stories turn to Trump comeback narrative using the skills garnered from a career in reality television. Donald Trump has turned this campaign on its head. It's going to be a there's going to be a Peter Baker story that makes us really mad. (laughs) (laughs) A couple Axios headlines, you know. All right. Uh, When we come back, uh, we will have Dan's conversation with Latasha Brown. 
Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shims that eliminate noise for the life of the pad. Rubber-coated hardware for a better fit and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. I'm joined now by organizer and a co-founder of the Black Voters Matter Fund, Latasha Brown. Latasha, it's great to talk to you again. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. This has been such a challenging time from coronavirus to police brutality to the changes in the economy. I just wanted to get your reaction to the moment we're in and what you're hearing from uh, the voters and folks out there that you were talking to on a daily basis. You know, there's a lot going on right now. We've got to pause. There's a, you know, there's a, a, a multiple set of crises that are going on right now. You know, and with great pain, though, comes great possibilities. So I think what we're seeing right now is that people are frustrated. We're seeing this frustration that while, you know, there was a George Floyd um, murder that we all witnessed in real time, you know, it actually taps into something deeper, a deeper pain of how we've gone years without really dealing with structural racism in this country, police brutality, and all those things that were, that country seems to, to, to not deal with. And so I think in this moment, I think there is a, while it's really uncomfortable for all of us, that that's part of, that is pointing to a real possibility for us to get this country on the right road. That fundamentally, we just kind of keep trudging along like things are okay, and they're not okay. And what we're seeing now is the evidence of them not being okay. And so this week, you know, I've really been, it's been hard to sleep. You know, um, we've been getting a, um, just personally, just as a, uh, a, a, a black woman in America, it's been very, very difficult and hard for me. Um, and also being a mother of a 26-year-old black male has been very, very difficult for me. But also being an organizer, and I'm hearing, I'm hearing folks on the ground be intensified, like they're up to here. You know, it's one thing that we're dealing with two major crises. So you've got one crisis dealing with COVID-19, and now we've got this whole other crisis that we're dealing where we feel Feel like we are under attack, that essentially the American government has declared war on its citizens. We can fix it up however we want to, right? But when you're doing a peaceful protest that is actually guaranteed in the Constitution and the, the, the president of this country actually sit tear gas just so he can make a photo op, that's in countries, that's a dictatorship, that's fascism. And for us to normalize that really speaks to how, um, how, how far we've fallen. You know, and so I think in the midst of that, you know, uh, diamonds are uh, coal under extreme pressure, right? We know that, and we know that the way that glass is made is glass is sand that's been fired. And so I think at the end of the day, what we are seeing, we're seeing this moment. It's a crystallizing moment in American history that we will either go backwards, tremendously, like backwards, right, far or we will go forward. And so I think there's a couple of, you know, a couple of key pieces. One, what is giving me so much hope is I'm looking at, I'm talking to folks, I'm looking at the protest lines. It is multicultural, it's multiracial, multigenerational. So it is, the, it's not just black people, but they're the citizens of this country are acknowledging that there is something fundamentally wrong in this country and that we've got to fix it. And that gives me hope. The focus of your work over the last many years has been about trying to get African-American voters engaged in the political process. And you said something to me when we spoke 
before the 2018 election that has stuck with me and I think about all the time, which is that non-voters are not apathetic. They are making a conscious decision that the politics does not work for them, the system does not work for them. Do you think this moment has the potential to show people the importance of getting involved in politics or could have the opposite effect? No, I absolutely think so. I think the protests and the demonstrations are actually evidence that people are not apathetic. People who are apathetic don't care, don't go to the streets in the middle of a pandemic and put themselves at risk. Um, so what we're seeing, right, the uprisings that we're seeing all over this country, there were protests in all 50 states. There are protests that have gone on, we're like on day nine, if I'm not mistaken, that in itself is evidence and is primarily led by young people. You know, and there's always this conversation around young people are apathetic, they're not engaged. The bottom line is that is evidence of young people do care. And so the question is, how do we take this moment and really take that energy and direct some of that energy in a way that it is around electoral uh, politics? Because the bottom line is, many people are just turned off from this damn process. They don't think it's fair. They don't think that their voices are being heard. They don't see the kind of candidates that they wanna see. And so what we see, we saw that in the AOC race, we saw that in the Ayanna Presley race, we even saw that in Georgia and Stacey Abrams race, where you had more voters to come out and young voters in a cross section um, of, of, of racial diversity and gender diversity and also age diversity, people are looking for something different. And so I think that this is the opportune time for us to like literally hold the parties accountable, both parties, political parties, that we've got to hold them accountable that the people are screaming for something different. And so young folks, I think this is the the opportune time. This is how people are getting activated. There are folks getting activated. I can just tell you, even from Black Voters Matter, in the last last three days, we've gotten so many volunteer requests that we've literally got to expand and do a whole nother program of our volunteers. Folks are trying to look for how can they be engaged. And there's moments like this that actually activate generations. We know that there was a generation of folks that were activated in the civil rights movement, young people. We know that there were a generation of people who were activated in Vietnam in the 70s around the Vietnam War. This is one of those quintessential moments that people are being activated. It is up to us as organizers and organizations that are doing civic engagement and power building work to really be able to tap into that energy and allow this process to be real for people so that we're not leading and being tone deaf and just saying, oh, you just got to vote because it's going to fix it because nobody believes that because it's not true. Right. But what we can say is that we know that voting can make a difference because voting can make a decision on who the DA is. And that's how this and this is how it can be connected. Voting can make a difference in terms of who the police chief, who the, the, the people who are making these decisions. And so I think it's the, con con the, the, the connection of taking this conversation out of participation and making this conversation be in the context of power. That's what young people want to hear about, not just the participation part. They're literally looking at how does my participation lend itself for me and my community having more power and more agency so that the people in office feel responsive to us and our needs. What would your message be to Democratic leaders, including Vice President Joe Biden, about the right way to speak to voters in this moment? 
I think the writing is on the wall. I mean, I think it's three things. One that I just said, I think part of what we've been hearing this message, just think about it. This message is, you know, just vote, like vote, you vote. You don't take care of everything. Just vote, vote for me. And I'm going to take care of everything. That is not how government works, right? We're not like, I, and, and let me say that I think that there's been a paradigm shift that at one point it was about getting this charismatic leader that could just get on the white horse and take us on into a political glory land. Nobody believes that. Let's just be honest. Nobody believes that. It hasn't happened. It's impossible for happening, right? Even when you look at, and I know in the Obama campaign, one of the things that I want to lift up that was interesting is while he was a popular charismatic leader, his campaign message was, yes, we can. It wasn't, yes, I can, right? And I'm quite sure that was intentional. I know you got the inside on that, right? But it was, it was a way of engaging people that it was a collective us tapping and using our collective power. I think what we're, we've got to see, even from the Biden campaign, is it's not about having the perfect candidate. It's not about this is what Biden can do. He can just beat Trump. But literally, we've got to tap into people want to be a part of the governance process, that there has to be a campaign that as he goes forward, there are three things that I think he can do. One, I think the campaign should be centered around a message that is really about inclusive of the power of we other citizens, not just I or the best candidate, and I'm going to save y'all, but ultimately, literally about we. The second thing is I think it's really important that now with all that is going on, particularly since he has been um, attached to his work around the crime bill, and we have not forgotten about that, and people will continue to raise that, that this is the opportunity for him to lead now. Not saying what I'm going to do when I'm in office, but that in this, in, in this vacuum of leadership, that we're seeing, and I think we saw a start of that. I thought his, his speech the other day, I think was the beginning of that, but really to be able to take bold steps and recommendations of what he's going to do to address the critical cry of citizens around criminal justice reform. I mean, we've got to have some bold steps. It's not going to be enough. Let me say, it is not going to be enough to arrest the officers and think that people are going to go back to their respective corners and we're going to be okay. Because we've seen that play itself out over and over again. The reason why the protests continue to go is because people are saying that's not enough. That's just a start. What we want to see is a complete rehaul of the criminal justice system. We want a, a complete realignment and we're reimagining around the police. Their folks are asking for the police to be defunded right now because we don't, we're not going to use our tech money to actually support folks to kill and traumatize and harass us. So I think that there's also, that from the Democratic Party and the leadership, they've got to step into the void of leadership that the day is over of politics as usual, that's over with. That paradigm has been shifted. What we have seen, all the energy is that there is, they can ignore the progressive wing of the party if they want to, but regardless of what do you think about the, the candidates, what we saw in the, in the Bernie Sanders campaign is there was a lot of energy, a lot of young folks, a lot of the, the progressive, you cannot ignore that wing of the party. And ultimately there is a bold, young, committed group of, of progressive voters that are saying it is not good enough for the Democratic Party to continue to chase after the mythical white moderate voter that has not showed up in 20 years. And so if what we've got to do is actually really respond to the future. And I think part of that too is we've got to have a party that is reflective of the base of the party. The fact that we are, I just, I just want to just note this. The fact that black women have been the base of the party and literally the most responsive 
and engage race of the party for the last 50 years, and we have not had a black woman on the Supreme Court as a pick or a nominee or a black woman in one of those offices, let's just flip it for a second. What world would white men be the absolute base of any political, any party, any institution, anything for 50 years, and there was no representation of their leadership? It would be unconscionable. So my point is, at some point, we're at a reckoning moment. That in this moment, it's not even about saying um, representation or like one of the things that I've been asking for is the Biden campaign to consider a black woman as VP. It's not that we're, it's it's not in a context of saying that it hurt. We actually think it brings value that people are looking for a party that is going to be representative, that has a depth of understanding, that can bring a broad base of people together. That's where we are right now. And so what I think we're not seeing is in some ways, you know, I always love to bring the blockbuster Netflix mode. Blockbuster Netflix did the same thing. Both of them brought theater, home theater to their customers. Same thing. Blockbuster was in position. They had, they had it on lock, right? They were on the stock market. They had um, physical places everywhere, brick and mortar space. I mean, you couldn't go down the street without seeing a big blue Blockbuster um, piece, right? Here comes along. They had the opportunity. They had, a, they had an advantage, but they were so caught up. Now, of course, this is my assessment, <laughs> right? They were so caught up and continuing to do business the way that they had been doing business that they couldn't see that on the horizon that there was this, Netflix was saying, we're not going to have any of that. Like what we're going to do is be able to provide the same service in a different kind of way. It's going to be distinctively different and change the culture, but we're going to provide. And who exists right now? Netflix is flourishing. Blockbuster is gone. My point is we can't do blockbuster politics. The, the, the politics of yesterday around, let's find this, this, this super candidate that can beat, uh, um, um, can beat Trump and let's just get behind this message that is going to be a safe message. That is not going to cut it. We're in a new era. We're in a new paradigm. And so if the Democrats are really trying to solidify, and it's not just about winning this election, it's really about shaping the politics of this country going forward so that it is inclusive and that it is just, and it is equitable. And they have the prime, they're, they're in a position that Blockbuster was. They got, they got ahead, they got, a, they, they got an advantage because people are with them and they can actually make that transition. But it's gonna be up to the leadership to see what they do. Latasha, before I let you go, on with your very busy day. And then I go explain to uh, our very young producers what Blockbuster is. Um, <laughs> I'm going, I want to, uh, I know a lot of our listeners will, will want to get involved and see how they can help you and your organization. What's the best way for someone who's listening to this today to help Black Voters Matter in your work? So the best way to do that is where you can reach out to us on our website, um, Black Voters, that's V-O-T-E-R-S, Matter, M-A-T-T-E-R, Fund, F-U-N-D, dot org. We're very active on social media, on Twitter, Black Voters, M-T-R, on Facebook, we actually have um, weekly town halls um, throughout all the 11 states that we're working in. Uh, we're working in all the states in the South, in Michigan and Pennsylvania, and we're doing some work, some target work in other communities. So please, we're actually recruiting volunteers. We've been raising money. We've got a fund set up to, to, to help bail some of the peaceful protesters out. We also are doing some COVID-19, but we're literally on the ground doing the work. We are committed to turning this not into a space around participation, but power. 
Like at, even in the Constitution, it says that when government no longer serves you, you are to replace it or to abolish it. What we're saying is the government is supposed to be other people for the people and by the people. This is our moment. This is our time to take all of this energy right now and really turn it into a vision. Let's reimagine America and really think about how do we build America that we all deserve. And so I just encourage people to please follow us, Black Voters Matter. You can also follow me, Miss um, Latasha Brown, MS Latasha Brown. I'm very active as well. And so we will literally, um, we're, built, we're building troops. We're taking this energy right now. We're trying to take this energy and really transform this energy in something that is going to be um, for the best of all of us in this country. Latasha, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll be sure to talk to you again as this election proceeds. Sounds great. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Latasha Brown for joining us today. And uh, everyone, try your best to have a good weekend. Yeah, bye, everyone. Pod Save America is a product of Crooked Media. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papa Dimitriou, Caroline Reston, and Elisa Gutierrez for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Konian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as videos every week. <laughs>